You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Well, it's not, but uh, it is great to be a part of a denomination that's, that is faithfully committed to the Word of God, the Reformed faith, and to the gospel mission. Please turn in your Bible to the letter of 1 John, chapter 5, as we come near the end of our series that should stretch out into August as we finish up on the epistles of John. Test are part of life. Most of us had to pass tests to get out of school. Many of us had to pass tests to get into school, whether college or grad school or uh, Votech school. In seminary, we had this Bible knowledge exam that you had to pass before you could graduate, and some guys had to take that test multiple times to get their Bible knowledge where it needed to be. In coming to this church, in this presbytery, I had to pass a thorough rigorous test of, or, of ordination exams. And uh, with any test comes certain criteria. Well, as we come towards the end of 1 John, we see the theme of tests repeated over and over. And uh, it's not a, not a merit-based test, but it's a confirmation test to assure the believer that he or she is in Christ and has a sure hope of eternal Life. Please follow as I read 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 and 13. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, this is wonderful and consoling assurance to the troubled soul, and I pray that you would minister to our hearts tonight, that for the believer in doubt, that you would provide assurance for 
the one unsure of where he stands before you, that you might bring him to a sure knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. May you minister to us and teach us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife and I recently applied for some term life insurance. We've had term life for a number of years, but it was time to update it and switch companies and cut costs and extend our term out a little bit as we've added a few children in in recent years and wanted to make sure we are covered. Life insurance is something that we believe is a matter of good stewardship. In the untimely event of one of our deaths, we don't want to leave the other in a burdening situation upon the church or extended family for financial needs. And so life insurance... Uh, for many people, is one measure of security in an oftentimes insecure world. And for me personally, it's one less thing to worry about should the Lord take me prematurely before our children are grown. Well, as important as life insurance may be, especially when you're in the so-called prime of life, there's another type of security that's far more important, and that what we might call life assurance a matter of eternal security in Christ. In contrast, life insurance is about temporal matters, a matter of of financial security. But spiritual assurance is a matter of eternal security. We're convinced that the apostles of the New Testament church give clear teaching of the assurance of the believer. Eternal life, the promise of eternal life, is not a dangling carrot by which if we work hard enough and we perform and if we're spiritual enough and jump through all the right religious hoops, then we can achieve some measure of assurance of eternal life. Rather, eternal life is the gift of God. It is given to us in our salvation. Assurance is that gift of confidence that we might have real conscience awareness that our salvation is secure, just as secure as Christ died and rose again. Our salvation is something that cannot be lost. It cannot be denied to those of us who are in Christ. No spiritual sickness or sin can disqualify us from its benefits. And unlike term life, term life insurance, that is, which expires... The assurance of eternal life never runs out. Maybe it's more like a whole life policy, but I'm not a big fan of whole life. Rather, Jesus is the only whole life. Jesus is the only permanent assurance we ever need, nor could have. John, in his letter, in this text that we have read, offers three tests of assurance. Faith, love, and obedience. Faith, love, and obedience are to be the character markers of the Christian. And the link between these three assurances is the new birth. For those who have experienced new life in Christ, faith, love, and obedience all naturally flow out of, grow forth from our new birth in Christ. Well, firstly, let's look at faith. And all three of these are scattered across the first five verses. John writes, everyone who believes that Jesus 
is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. So first of all, the whole doctrine of assurance is grounded in our new birth. That we are born again by faith in Christ. And he goes on to say that everyone who loves the Father loves his child. Now some interpreters at one time thought this referred to Christ, but we believe this refers to believers. That one sign of assurance is a love for the Father is manifest in our love on the horizontal plane with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. You may recall the, uh, the, broad, the award-winning musical and movie, The uh, Sound of Music, from several decades ago. It's one of our family's favorite movies. And you'll remember the character Baroness Schrader, who was the romantic interest of Captain Von Trapp. And as you follow the storyline, you realize that she really doesn't care much and certainly doesn't love the children of Captain Von Trapp. And as it turns out, it really didn't seem she loved him as much as she loved the idea of being married to him. Well, in contrast to the Baroness, there is Fraulein Maria, who loves the captain's children. And in time, begins to realize that she loves their father, and he her. And so culminates into a beautiful love story between a new husband and wife and the children. And so John is telling us that we cannot love the father without also loving the father's children. The two go together. And also, as we are, see clearly from this text and other writings of John, you cannot love Father God without loving his one and only begotten son. Jesus, in a confrontation with some of the Jewish religious leaders, uh, confronts them for who, those who claim to love God but have rejected him and his ministry. He says in John 8, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. All kinds of religions throughout the world, all kinds of religious or non-religious people make all kinds of claims to love God. Whether it's Judaism or Islam or some sort of modern secularism, there are many people who claim to love God, serve God, but have rejected the Son. They may respect Jesus as a teacher, as a moral philosopher, but they don't recognize his divinity, and they certainly don't pledge their allegiance to him or love him. But the scriptures teach that we must embrace the divinity of the Father and the Son. And we must yield to the mission of the Father to send his Son into the world to pay our ransom for us. Well, verse 2 goes on to talk about the nature of love as another test of the Christian life. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. So when we truly love God, we keep his commands, and uh, we know that we truly love his children. So just as we cannot love God if we, can, if we don't love the children, so we can't love the children if we don't truly love God. Now, there are some people who don't believe in God and certainly don't love God who can appear, and in some ways on an earthly, man-centered way, appear to be loving people and love others. But this is at a mere surface level because 
in our fallenness, in our flesh, we recognize that even certain manifestations of love can be very self-serving. That it's merely an expression of the flesh and not a divine or spirit-empowered love. It does not come from God. It may be admirable before the world, but it's not commended by God because his love is absent from these people's actions. Just to carry on this thought, I've been taught and have grown to realize one of the best ways that I can love my children is by loving their mother. And likewise, when I love my children, my wife knows that she is loved. We cannot divorce one from the other. In that relationship of parent and child, there's a, there's a love, uh, a connection of love that must be manifest in each direction. And so we can take from this idea that one of the best ways that we love one another in the church is to grow in our love for God. To grow in, to grow in our love for him is to obey him. Just consider how much better society would be. How much healthier the church would be if we loved and obeyed God. How many of our failings and our sins and fallouts and brokenness in the church result from a neglect of loving and obeying our God? So if we truly love God, we will not only be loving other believers, but we will obey his commands as we come into verse 3. He says... This is love for God, to obey his commands. We remember the teaching of Jesus on the night of his his betrayal and his trial the night before his crucifixion. He tells his disciples very directly, If you love me, you will keep my commands. The manifestation of that love is revealed by clear, trusting obedience. And he goes on to say here in verse 3, and his commands are not burdensome. I think we can all imagine the, the young child, the student, maybe elementary age student, who has a, a teacher that he does not like. Maybe she has it in for him. Maybe she is always putting him down. Maybe he's always being passed over in favor of the teacher's pet. Or she or he rubs this young student the wrong way. Well, in some cases, consequently, the child, the student, will struggle in his studies. His study habits, his lessons will be a burden to him. He will be unmotivated to perform because of his resentment or frustration with the teacher. Well, then suppose later on in the year this teacher leaves or gets fired or it's the end of the year and a new year is coming and a new teacher comes in who is kind, who is fair, who is pleasant. The whole world of school for the student will radically change. In fact, he grows to love this teacher. Maybe at first a kind of puppy love that some young students have for their teachers, but it grows into something more mature, a deep admiration and respect for this kind and and very diligent teacher that's helping him. And consequently, his grades will pick up. He will be motivated. His former struggles with math and grammar are not so burdensome anymore. He approaches his studies with a whole new kind of zest. 
Well, as can be seen, it is so much easier to obey if one loves the master. If a child loves his parents. If an employee has love for or respect for the boss, it is a whole lot easier to carry out their orders. Well, it's not all that different with God. If you don't love God, his commands will be but a chore. But if you love him, his laws and his commands will be your joy and your pleasure. Just listen how the psalmist in Psalm 119 describes it. He says, I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. James echoes this sentiment in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, he will be blessed in what he does and speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. These expressions from the scriptures are people who are passionately in love with their creator and their redeemer and and his commands are not burdensome. Remember how Jesus described the regulations of the scribes and Pharisees who laid heavy burdens on the people that are too hard to bear. But in vivid contrast, the yoke of Jesus is easy. His burden is light for the one who is called by him, who follows him out of a deep and undying love for him. Well, let's consider verses 4 and 5 before we go on to the next section. In verse 4, we're told that everyone born of God overcomes the world. We have victory by our new birth. It was Jesus who declared boldly, Take heart, I have overcome the world. And Jesus says those words on the eve of his own death, his own tragic crucifixion. How in the world could this be overcoming the world? But what seemed completely out of uh, comprehension to the disciples at first became known to them within a few days and then a few weeks. And as they begin to understand the implications of Christ's death and resurrection, recognizing that he indeed had the true victory. And with him, all of us who have been born again have overcome with him. We are no longer under the captivity of this world, nor the tyranny of sin or the the oppression of the devil. And we appropriate this victory by faith. And I believe, verse 4, when he says that this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith, this is John's doctrine of Justification, salvation by faith alone. Faith is the instrument by which we are identified with Christ and receive the benefits of victory over sin and death. Well, verse 5 goes on to elaborate on this, the content of this faith that's expressed in verse 4. He says, Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Our faith is not in faith. Our faith is not in our prayers. Our faith is not in what we did or what we said years ago. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. He is the object of our faith. It is he who who overcame the world and achieved the victory over sin and death. He is our champion. You may have heard of what we call representative warfare. In fact, it was a a common way to settle battles or disputes with 
minimal bloodshed in the ancient world. In fact, we see examples of this in Scripture. David and Goliath was an example of representative warfare. Rather than the Philistines and the Israelites have full-fledged battle and losing hundreds or thousands of men, why not have the two best champions come forward into the valley and duke it out, and winner takes all. And the losing side becomes subject to the victor. Uh, C.S. Lewis illustrates this idea with, uh, in the Prince Caspian book between Peter and King Meroz, the usurper of Caspian's throne. And uh, we see this, this evident throughout uh, other areas of literature and throughout the Bible. Uh, but the point from this is that everybody wants the champion to be on in their team. And, and Christian, if, if you are in Christ, you're on the winning team. You have the champion on your side. He has fought the battle on your behalf. He has won it, and you are a winner. You are a champion in him. The battle is already won. And we have this victory, this victory that that echoes back to all the crazy victories of God throughout biblical history of a youthful David slaying this mighty and powerful champion of the Philistines, the slave people of Israel, overcoming the oppression of Pharaoh and Egypt's mighty armies, the small band of Gideon's warriors, overcoming tens of thousands of of, of enemy soldiers. God uses the weak things of the earth to shame the strong and the boastful. And friend, you and I can take from this hope that we need to stop living defeated lives. We must live like the overcomers that we are in Christ. And consequently, we can put to death, by faith, our sin patterns. That by faith in Christ, we can resist falsehood, false teaching, false messages that bombard us in a very uh, unbelieving culture. That by faith, we can overcome persevering in our trials. As we struggle with doubt, as we struggle with... uh, despair with our job situation, with our finances, with relational conflicts, persevering, resisting, putting these things to death are all the marks of those who have overcome by faith in Christ. And so we can be reminded from Paul in Romans eight thirty seven: we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I turn now to verses 6 through 10 that offer us these three testimonies. These, uh, it's kind of a law court image. And of course, in any, any court of law needs witnesses to testify to the facts of what has taken place. And John lists these three witnesses, water, blood, and spirit. Now, there's been a couple of different interpretations of what these things mean throughout the ages. And, uh, in fact, in the Reformation era, uh, Luther and Calvin and others uh, tend to think of the water and the blood referenced here as the two sacraments of the gospel, of baptism and uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, But based upon uh, the strange connection between blood and the Lord's Supper, it seems very doubtful that that is what the Apostle John means. Uh, Going back to Augustine and some others, uh, thought of this water and blood image as referring to the spear that pierced Jesus' side on the cross, out of which flowed water and blood. And um, that's also kind of doubtful. 
as to looking at one event that may be not as significant as, uh, as other events. Well, what, what do these water and, and blood symbolize? What, what do they represent? Well, I think the best explanation is that these refer to those historical experiences of Jesus that confirm his divine and human identity. That the water referred primarily to Jesus' baptism. They're referencing that time when he was baptized in the River Jordan, by which he was commissioned, received the power of the Holy Spirit to carry out his work and ministry. And also the blood would refer to the cross. When his mission was completed, when his work was finished, uh, making a sacrifice for our sins. So these, and what's interesting, these symbols of water and blood helped to combat the false teachings uh, that were attacking and threatening the church in John's day. These false teachings that tried to separate Jesus from the Christ. And we see this, this theme that John is dealing with these false teachings in his epistles. And uh, the, as the teaching goes, that, uh, in, that, in the first century, that Jesus was merely a man born of Mary and Joseph, and that somehow the Christ descended on Jesus at his baptism and then ascended and whisked away from the man Jesus before he died on the cross. But John, we would interpret, is countering this false teaching to confirm that Jesus was the Christ who came through water and blood. Christ was not just in the baptism. He was also on the cross as well. To combat any heresy, to to recognize that the divine man, that Jesus the Christ, did live and die for our sins on the cross. And of course, the secondary allusions from water and blood, from the Old Testament imagery, water represents purification. Blood represents our redemption. We've been purchased and that we are secure and debt-free in the sight of God. Well, we recall that the false witnesses at Jesus' trial did not agree on their testimony against Jesus, but these three testimonies, the water, the blood, and the spirit, all confirm and agree uh, that Jesus is the Christ. We come now to the last three verses in verses uh, 11 through 13. Now, I just want to read in verse 11 as we shift gears away from uh, the three testimonies. Now we come to what may be called the three assurances. And it's based on this in verse 11. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Jesus said that he had come that we may have life and have it abundantly. Life in him, in this life, and eternal life in the eternal state. Verse 12 goes on to say that he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. If you've done any yard work in your yard, whether in the bushes or with trees, whenever you cut a fresh branch off of a tree, it looks like it's alive but uh, it's headed quickly for a a sure and certain death. And I think that's a a vivid image to help us understand that that people may look alive, 
but they're really dead if they are not in Christ. You know, there are many things in this world and in our culture that promise life, promise to get us out of debt, promise us an education or a fulfilling job or career. And we need to recognize that there is nothing that can deliver on the promise of life like God in Christ. Or to look at it another way, imagine a person who is hooked up to a life support system, having gone through a tragic accident and near death, that that person cannot live or cannot continue to live without that life support system until their body is healthy again to function on its own power. To unhook a person in critical state from their life support system will completely cut him or her off from life. My family enjoys watching the Planet Earth videos by the Discovery Channel, and there's one video that highlights an underwater caving expedition where we see these divers, these expert divers going deep, some you know, dozens or even hundreds of feet underwater into these underwater, underground caves. And it's actually very, very dangerous because it's very easy to get trapped in a, in a nook and cranny or to have a rock, you know, cut into your, your oxygen supply, whether your tubes or your tank on your back. And, uh, of course, once you're down that deep, if you get in trouble, there's not enough time for anybody to go back for help. I mean, you're, you're, you're stuck. Well, I think the things of this world that promise life are like a deteriorating oxygen tank. That physical life on earth is like a clock ticking for the unbeliever. For anyone who is not in Christ, that person is like a trapped diver under the sea. It's only a matter of time for he or she will be permanently cut off from life. Because we believe that after death, there is no more hope. The opportunity for eternal life is gone forever. Friend, if you are a believer... You have the assurance of eternal life. We have the assurance that when we die, we will go on to live forever with the Lord. We have an eternal source of life that will sustain us beyond the grave. Death is merely passing through to the eternal state where we will enjoy the fellowship of God forever. Whereas the unbeliever, as it says here, he does not have life. Without the Son, there is no life, but there is only eternal death of torment and unending punishment. John had written his gospel for the purposes of reaching unbelievers, as quoted in chapter 20, verse 31. This letter is more for believers to give us the assurance of our salvation. Now, there are those who would criticize our faith and tell us that we are presumptuous to claim any assurance of eternal life. But we would counter that presumptuousness lies in doubting God's word, not trusting in it. If God's word makes clear that we can have assurance, it is not presumptuous to claim it. We claim it out of obedience, out of trust and faith in what God has promised in his word. He says lastly in verse 13, 
I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Friend, believer, you can know that you have eternal life. And you don't have to be a saint in the worldly sense. You don't have to be a super-duper Christian to have this measure of assurance. The only requirement is that you have placed simple faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that by his life, he fulfilled the law. By his death, he satisfied God's holy requirements on your behalf. And that through his sacrifice, you can be assured that you are acceptable to God and will be with him forever. Jesus has provided everything you need for your salvation. There are other sects of Christianity that don't teach assurance. Roman Catholicism, in its official stance, denies its membership the assurance of eternal life. Only the upper-tier saints can claim full assurance. And so the average Roman Catholic goes to the grave with a certain measure of uncertainty, facing likely purgatory, to be purged of their remaining sins, or perhaps fearing hell for the the neglect of confessing a mortal sin. Friends, we can know that Jesus Christ has purged us from all of our sins. Purgatory is a myth. There is no limbo. We can receive insurance from what Jesus told the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. We can carry that hope with us to our dying day. This assurance is offered to all believers, even those whose faith is but the mere size of a mustard seed. Allah, the Quran, offers no assurance even to the most devoted Muslims. They face an eternal misery, not for failing to live up to Islamic standards, but because of their rejection of Jesus Christ the only Savior of sinners. Sinner, I plead with you tonight. If you lack assurance, perhaps it may be because you have yet to trust Christ for your salvation. I implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. And Christian, you who have professed faith, you who have known the Lord, you who have walked with the Lord and yet struggle with with doubt, with some fear, with insecurity, I challenge you, I exhort you to make your calling and election sure, to make good on your assurance, to cry out to God, to ask his Holy Spirit to affirm to your spirit that you belong to him, that he will not let go of you, that you are his beloved child who can never go astray from his love, that he has accepted you and adopted you by the perfect work of Christ. Jesus came that we might have life and have it in abundance. John writes that we might know that we have eternal life. Praise be to the living God in whom we have life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us life. We thank you that you have given us the promise of eternal life, that through the perfect work of Christ, we can have security and know that eternal life is ours through 
his life and work in our place. I pray that you would assure us, strengthen us, renew us, and may we live for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.